Okay. Are we good? I think. We're Don't touch try. anything. <laughs> we're gonna try. <laughs> Are we good? Uh-huh. Okay. <clears throat> I'm just afraid to move. <laughs> Or touch anything because I don't want to disturb our uh, setup here. Welcome back to Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. This is our um, first full episode, so we're going to call it episode one, even though I think iTunes is going to call it episode two. Um, but if you haven't listened to the brief introduction we gave last time, we want to encourage you to go back and do that. Um, But this is a podcast where Pastor Ben and I are going to be going through, going along with our Bible reading plan for the year. I do want to say that Pastor Ben has been silent thus far because of his uh, terrible concern about the upsetting the technology um, because we've had an awful time getting started this morning. But I think we're set. I believe he could speak freely. He's just really worried about doing so. Well, and I'm also really embarrassed about how loud I breathe. (laughs) We are, as a church, embarking on reading the whole Bible together in a year. And there is a chronological plan Mm -hmm. that we have put out and will be putting out kind of month to month as the church goes through. There's also a Facebook group. Mm Mm-hmm that I think you have uh, I've shared promoted. multiple times, yeah. Also a small group, a physical small group, will start meeting in a few weeks, January 11th. That'll go for two months or so, just here at the beginning, and talking about different Old Testament issues. So this podcast is one of the tools that we're trying to offer to the church uh, in pursuit of our third renewal goal, which is to read the Bible every day. Um, for you know 15 minutes however long it takes you to get through the the plans readings yeah and i think that if that is a practice that you begin you'll be surprised at how easy that it is to incorporate into your life Um, it takes time to do that but once you get it in i think you'll be surprised at how natural it becomes and how big of a blessing it is And so our hope is that you will do that, that you will join us that way. And also as we kind of get started these first couple episodes, uh, if any of you are actually listening, we are very open to input and to what would actually be helpful. Uh, We're not just looking for, you know, Ben and Clayton blow hot air for an hour, you know, on the internet. Uh, And so if there are maybe other ways that these episodes could be structured or... I don't know, just changes we could make to... to I mean, obviously, it's going to stay about this reading plan and, and reading through the Bible. Yeah. Uh, we're just we're very open, and we welcome that feedback, especially just questions about the texts that you may have as we go. And we'd love to, on a weekly basis, in the beginning of our episode, just go over some of the questions that we've got from people. Mm-hmm. But we have to get them in order to do that. Genesis, all the way through Genesis 24, it looks like. Yes. And the first 27 verses of First Chronicles. Okay. Yes, those are the readings for this week, <laughs> this coming week. Um, and while it may seem like a lot to read 24 chapters of the Bible, it's not broken up over a week. So what we would like to do is give you kind of a preview 
of, of the readings. And I'm going to be focusing entirely on the Genesis portion of the passages. Why, uh, why are we leaving out our good friend Chronicles? Well, the first 27 verses of First Chronicles are entirely a list of names. And while that is good and edifying, it is difficult to summarize a list of names. Whose names are they? <laughs> I could tell you whose names they are by literally reading the names. There's no way that I know of to summarize that list of names in order to give you a brief What's the thing first of it. name on the list? Adam. What's the last name on the list? Oh, look at you. What's Abraham? Hmm. Thank you for that summary. <laughs> so anyway, back to Genesis. <laughs> Thank you very much, Pastor Ben, for that The aid. Book of Chronicles deserves an advocate. <laughs> And I am that advocate. We're literally preaching out of it for months on end. I think we're paying appropriate amount. My topic is the names at the beginning (laughs) of Chronicles. I did actually consider that as something you might do, but I I discarded it because you preached a sermon on it. So I thought that would finish it. Funnily enough, I'm just realizing I did not grab a Bible for this Bible (laughs) broadcast. (laughs) One moment. Okay, so you, uh, Clayton, were about to give us a summary of <laughs> yes, the a, rest of the readings. A summary of the first 24 chapters of the book of Genesis. Yes. So the book of Genesis begins by talking about darkness and disorder. And God creates a world, then, with order and beauty that's full of life. And the kind of pinnacle of that creation is humanity, Adam and Eve, who are made in his image which means that they're sort of reflections and representatives of God. And he gives them a job to do, to rule over the rest of creation and to rule in such a way that God's goodness is made manifest in it. And God, whose name we're told is Yahweh, blesses them and gives them a garden as a starting place for this new world. And Yahweh gives them, Adam and Eve, a choice. In the garden is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he tells them not to eat the fruit from it or they will surely die. So the choice they have is whether or not they're going to trust Yahweh and his word, or if they're sort of going to choose themselves and trust themselves. Then in chapter 3, a snake appears. And the snake tells them that if they eat of this fruit, um, of the forbidden fruit, they won't die like Yahweh says they will. Instead, they will become like Yahweh. And so Adam and Eve decide to rebel against Yahweh's word and eat of the fruit. And when they do, sin and death and all of their henchmen enter the world. And as a symbol of their state after their sin, we're told that they are naked and ashamed. Now this sin has devastating consequences for Adam and Eve and the rest of the world. And as Yahweh is telling them what those consequences will be, he also makes them a promise. That one day, one of their descendants will be the one to crush the serpent, even though that serpent will also bite his his heel. And so this story of Yahweh calling humanity to rule over the world and human beings disobeying and the effects of sin just sort of messing things up happens again and again in these early chapters of the Bible. First, we get the story of two brothers, Cain and Abel, and we see the effects of sin in their relationship. Yahweh prefers Abel's offering, and in frustration, Cain kills his brother. 
He's caught by Yahweh and goes off to build a city where sin runs rampant. Then we get this interesting story about the sons of God, these angelic beings that are trying to break into creation and co-op Yahweh's creation for themselves. And this contributes to a world that's filling up with evil and sin. Then we get the story of Noah's Ark. Now Noah's a righteous man whom Yahweh tells to build an ark to protect him and his family from the flood that Yahweh is about to send. And then Yahweh sends that flood and sort of washes away all the evil and evil people from the world. But shortly after the flood recedes, Noah finds himself naked and ashamed, just like Adam did, and the whole spiral starts again. Then comes the Tower of Babel, where human beings have become so impressed with themselves that they attempt to build a tower up to the heavens in defiance of God. So Yahweh comes down and humbles and scatters them. Then there's this turning point in the story, and we're introduced to the character Abram, whom we later know as Abraham. Abraham and God form a covenant, sort of like a treaty, which works this way. If Abraham will be faithful to Yahweh, then Yahweh will give Abraham a great name, a lot of descendants, and they will have a land for themselves, and Yahweh will bless all people through Abraham's family. Abraham and his wife Sarah struggle with these promises from Yahweh and show themselves to be very human, capable at once of a very great faith and at the same time terrible blunders. Eventually in their old age, again after some major blunders, Abraham and Sarah are blessed with the son of the promise, Isaac. In the end, Abraham shows himself to be a man of faith and the story begins to shift to Isaac and his wife Rebekah. But I do think that that summary worked pretty well. What do you think, Pastor Ben? Yeah, I think it was fine. Huzzah! I'll take fine as a compliment. <laughs> was that off the top of your head or were you reading something? I wrote it. Oh, good for you. Good for you. <laughs> I, uh, no, I, it, was, it was very nice. I enjoyed you, many you. parts of it. I uh, took some <laughs> notes. I think that if you had done that off the top of your head, I would have been even more impressed. <laughs> I thought you'd be impressed by my preparatory work. No, that's all. I'm just, I'm impressed all around. Thank I'm you, Ben. Just, let Thank me you. just express how impressed I am. With, <laughs> I appreciate with you, that. You know, it's all about you, really. <laughs> I don't know why this isn't called Clayton and Ben Eat the Bible, since you're obviously preeminent here. So that was, uh, do you have any thoughts about that or? I have so many thoughts. Hit me before we go into our <laughs> subjects. Let's, let's talk about it. Well, you know what we should have done before we start is we probably need to tell each other. Well, I don't know. Tell each other what our topics are. No, because I feel like the ambushing said... is not ambushing, but you know, not knowing is, is kind of fun. Yeah. That's yeah. what we talked about ahead of time that uh, we should not give each uh, other I previews. I don't have memory. Um, <laughs> This is good, because I think people think I'm the only forgetful one in this relationship, and it's not true. That's true. That is true. I forget more than Clayton's ever remembered. <laughs> <laughs> who makes this reading plan? Like, who, who built this chronological reading plan? So there is a set of Bibles that are done, that are one-year chronological Bibles, and they are made and based off of this reading plan. I don't know if there's a creator like 
behind that. But I mean, the, somebody did it. Well, sure. I, I guess I have not looked into okay. the uh, the origins I, I mean, of the I chronological reading I mean, I just was purely plan. curious, just because my, my question was going to be, why, uh, why was the set of verses from Chronicles paired with these first 24 chapters of Genesis? Well, because those set of verses from Chronicles go through eight, from Adam to Abraham, like the first 24 chapters of Genesis do. You kept calling God Yahweh. Uh, in most of our translations, that's not the word that's in mm-hmm. there. So what is that name? Why were you calling God that? Why is that not present in our translations? That's a, those are great questions. So what you will notice as you read your Old Testament is the word Lord often. Um, and in the Old Testament, you'll notice that all the letters are capitalized. L-O-R-D are capitalized, each of them. And those are because that's where the name Yahweh would be. And the reason why the word Yahweh isn't um, written is because there's a tradition through Scripture of protecting, caring about, and giving reverence to the name of God, which we are told later on in Scripture is the word Yahweh. It's used here to refer to him, but later on when he's talking to Moses, when Yahweh's talking to Moses, he reveals that this is his name. Uh, third commandment is a command to um, honor and revere the name of the Lord. And so what the, the Jews did is they were putting, a, putting the Old Testament together, the Hebrews did as they were putting the Old Testament together, is they would not even say the word Yahweh um, at, out of an attempt to show reverence to this. And so they would sort of change it in the text. We have sort of preserved that tradition and have capital L-O-R-D where the word Yahweh would be. Why do, because I mean, we both use the Lord's mm-hmm. name in our preaching and, and a lot of our teaching. Why do we feel justified doing that if kind of the tradition is not mm-hmm. to do that? Well, that's a really great question. We can answer that. Would that be more fun to wait until we get to the actual name of the Lord? Or should we do it here? Uh, let's just do it now. Let's just do it let's now. Let's come up. Why not? So uh, I think for a couple of reasons. One of them is that we do not think that when we are told to um, honor uh, the name of the Lord, which is, again, Yahweh, that what that means is do not say it um, for any reason. I don't think that that has to, those are a direct correlation. We're told not to misuse his name, right, or take it in vain. And so for me, um, that is not a, a command against saying the word Yahweh. What that means is that we ought not ascribe to Yahweh something that is not from Yahweh. We should not call something his that is not his. We should not say that he has done something that he has not done. Um, we should not equate him with other, other things or other, other gods, that he is unique and exalted and the one. And I think all that has to do with with not misusing uh, the name Yahweh. I do think that it is a wonderful thing that his name was so honored um, by his people that they didn't even want to use it. Um, I think that that can become a negative thing over time. Any Any act of devotion, if carried too far or for too long, or if it just becomes empty uh, practice can become a negative thing so that would be that would be the reason i don't if a person didn't use the name out of reverence for the lord i wouldn't have a problem with that i just Mm. don't think that's something we have to obey and there's a lot of controversy surrounding 
these first couple of chapters of Genesis, some of the most famous stories in the world. How are we to understand what these stories are? Wow, that is a very big question. It's a good one, but a big one. So um, how are we to understand what these stories are? I think that one thing we can do wrong is to read them as though we were reading a science or history book that was written today. Um, and the reason I think that's wrong is because for us to take God's word seriously, we need to take it as it was intended to be taken, right? We can't co-opt it and take it the way that we would if it was written today uh -huh. um, or if we had written it. We have to read it the way that it was intended for us to take it by the Lord. And so one of the things that you'll notice as you read through the creation passages, for example, is there's some things that don't quite make sense in, as far as the chronology goes. Um, things that, that will not work. Um, and Can you I, give us an example? Sure. So you end up with, we have light, right, before we have stars. That's a little odd. Hmm. Um, there's a couple of other things that are just a little difficult for us to figure out. And I think that one of the things we should not take from this is that what we are being given is a literal, historical, in the way we are accustomed to, um, telling of, of a story. But what we are being told is the most important things, fundamental things about the world. We're being told that all these things that people in the ancient world worshipped were actually created by our God. Um, that he is utterly and completely unique. That everything as we look around is made by him and sustained by him. It belongs to him. He is the creator of the universe. And that isn't as controversial a statement to um, religious people today mm -hmm. as it would have been to everyone in the ancient world. The ancient world was full of the beliefs of deities in all sorts of things. You, you worship the God in the river or the tree. You worship the God of the sun and the moon. And so in Genesis 1, we get this story about how all these things that other people worship actually were created by the one God. And I think that's the primary thrust of the creation passage. And then these other stories are sort of setting up the world as people know it on the way to Abraham. And so do I believe that they, they all happened? Yes, I do. Do I think that their, their literal um, historical accuracy is in any way the most important thing about the stories themselves? No, I don't. Because I think what's being told is a set of stories that help us understand the world that we're in. And that is a world that God has created he has created humanity to be his representatives, and he has, through, um, they have rebelled and sinned. Sin has entered the world, and God is working to bring redemption around. And that's what we get with the story of Abraham. And so I think if we can put on those lenses and read the story that way, um, we will find it much richer than trying to figure out exactly how big the flood was or mm -hmm. Um, why one passage says that two of every animal were brought on, and then another passage says that seven of some animals were brought onto the ark. You know, if we if we get too caught up in those details, we try to make these stories into something they're not. Mm. They're not they're not history books in the way we read history today. They're true, but they're true in the way that um, timeless truths are, and they're true in the way they describe the world to us that we live in today.
And so maybe from kind of the pastoral perspective, we could say that what we're not saying is that you shouldn't think that these things happened. I do think these things happened. Yeah, yeah, and so do I. But maybe we could say that you don't have to think that these things happen. Is that a fair thing to say? Like we would be comfortable with somebody being part of the Calvary family who does not think that God created the world in a week. Yes. Yeah. Or that the entire planet was covered with water during the the flood of Noah. Yes. Or that angelic beings somehow came down and and had sex with human women and birthed giants. Which right. That's the Genesis. I would so imagine right. very few of us actually think it's true, <laughs> frankly. I am I'm down with the well I'm not down with it. You know. Because the world is very weird. It is a and weird place. We should not discount how strange a universe we actually live in. But those things are not like mm, like core creedal. If you don't believe this, then right. you can't be in fellowship with us. Because somebody who really does, who, somebody who thinks that God created the world in a week and somebody who doesn't can both come to Genesis chapter one and be formed in Christ's likeness from it. Yes. Like believing in the literal truth of it doesn't. Uh, prevent you from from receiving the text and being formed by it. Now, as a counterpoint, though, I think there's there's some nuance there because, well, maybe we disagree. That I would say that two people coming to like Luke twenty four and one of them believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus and the other one doesn't. I would have issues saying, you know, okay, somebody who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus can still come to Luke twenty four and, you know. Before, I mean, I'm not, I guess the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants, just because I think that believing that Jesus physically rose from the dead is required to actually hear and receive those stories. Yes, I agree completely. Yeah. No, and I'm not saying you, I'm not saying you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm just saying that, you know, there is, there are distinctions amongst yeah. the different stories and texts of the Bible and we can't take them all as the same thing. Right. They're obviously not the same thing. Right. But the Bible doesn't always tell us, you know. In fact, it often doesn't. It, it often doesn't. And I think that's where interpretation comes in, where discernment comes in, you know, and where people can be wrong, right? Yeah. Like, it, um, I mean, we can be wrong the whole time. But just in terms of, of uh, deciding... You know, okay, so Noah's Ark story, eh, you don't have to believe it happened. But Jesus walking on water, yeah, maybe you do have to right. believe that, you know. <clears throat> so a couple of things here. So in the New Testament, when we're, we're reading the Gospels, one of the things that happens is when Jesus is telling a parable, it tells us ahead of time that he's telling a parable. And now the question I could ask somebody, the parable, the parable of the prodigal son, for example, is that story true? Um, and the parable of the prodigal son, as you know, is parable of a, a young man who is has a wealthy father. He's the younger brother. He takes his inheritance early, leaves, squanders it, comes back, is welcomed back into his home. And if I were to ask you, is that story true? If you said no, because we have an indication since it's a parable that there was not a literal boy Mm-hmm. who made this, had this conversation with his father, left, came back, and was received by his father. If there is no name to these characters, does that mean the story is not true? I'd say that you, you've misunderstood the depth and importance of 
of when Jesus is teaching truth. Um, he's relaying something very important about who God is, who we are, the reality of repentance and grace and love. And that story is absolutely true. It's true in a different way than a, a science textbook would talk about true things. And that's okay. What we need, that kind of truth, like the parable kind of truth, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we need to believe those, a Christian needs to believe those chapters are true, at least in the parable kind of way, mm -hmm. right? In the same way you could, you can read Jesus and not say, why are you lying to us, Jesus? That story didn't happen. Yeah. He's not lying. He's telling a story that tells us something very important about who God is and who we are. Mm -hmm. Genesis 1 through 11 are at least like that. They're at least a story telling us about the world, about God, and about us. They may also be literal retellings of events. The reason I think that that, that can happen is we have a God who's capable of making events happen in a way that has symbolism and um, you know a sequence of events like a story. Because God is a storyteller that way. Well, and I think this gets, and we're kind of in the weeds on this, but I think it's something that a lot of us sure. think about. And something that people can struggle with as they grow up in the faith, thinking, well, I don't really think this happened, and feeling like they're being forced out of the church. Yes. You know, And I think we want to not do that. You know, There's room at the table for people who don't believe that everything in the Bible happened literally. And I think this gets us into kind of the territory of like, well, what is history? <laughs> and like what do we mean well and, and let me just and like what do we mean so like a couple times you've said it's not history in the way we think of as history yes. it's like okay well what do we what does that mean exactly and and very basically kind of the modern uh paradigm for what history is is a a verifiable recording of the facts so like there's evidence for these things happening and so we're telling you, mm -hmm. quote unquote, what the facts are. Whereas in the ancient world, it wasn't that they weren't concerned about the facts. I think they were, but that it was more about what do these facts mean? Like, what is the meaning of this event? The difference is a historical retelling of the crucifixion of Jesus would tell us that this man was beaten and whipped and scorned. He was crucified. He died shortly thereafter. The end. And that's a historical retelling. That is not at all what happened. Right. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> well, not it fair. Is, that's it not... is what happened, but it's not the substance of what no, happened. It's not the most important but, parts of what happened. But if a scientist had been standing there with a seismograph and an x-ray and a telescope and a whatever else... They would not have detected salvation happening, right. right? Nobody standing there, maybe the centurion, but nobody standing there in the moment understood really what was happening, right. right? It took them, well, Jesus had to come back from the grave and tell them, and Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that some even doubted then. So it's like it's just standing there watching the thing happen doesn't actually give you the meaning of the event. Right. And so the Bible isn't telling us the facts alone. Right. It's giving us the meaning of what these things mean. Yes. Is that, would you say that's a fair, Absolutely. fair way to put it? Absolutely. I think that's a good way to put it. And so, again, just because we're trying not to get ourselves fired, we're not <laughs> saying that we don't take the Bible seriously. 
or even that we don't take it literally. I think Clayton and I both, we yes. read these stories and we say, yes, this is something that happened. There might be some wiggle room in terms of like, did it happen exactly like this? Sure. Uh, you know, did... Well, the priority of these authors was different. It was just right. different. Right. They're not, you know, that the 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 emphasis is on meaning over yes. reporting, I guess. I don't know. So you when know, you read a number in the Bible and it says that there were a million soldiers. Yeah. Um, the odds are that there weren't a million soldiers right. there. That that you the uh, the thought you have and the effect of reading a million soldiers in the kind of choked up panic feeling of an overwhelming array of enemies is is what's being communicated correct if there were fifty three thousand nine hundred and two of them <laughs> just because it says a million doesn't mean the bible is lying to you it's right. communicating to you exactly what you feel when you right. read the number a million right the meaning of right. what's happening is more important than the literal fact right. yeah well and also in the same way you know you're helping somebody move and you pick up, up one of their boxes and you go, oh my gosh, this weighs a ton. Well, no, it doesn't. But right. it's just really heavy. <laughs> but you're not lying when you say it weighs right. a ton. Right, but you're not lying. Right. And that's very important. Yeah, right. that's a good right. example. Yeah. You know, and so again, and there, I think this is where we have to be just very cautious and very gentle with one another and with our engagement with scholarship or whatever else. Because mm -hmm. we're all just, we're all trying to kind of figure out figure it out yeah where are those sorts of things happening where where are the numbers kind of more fudged a little bit that they're just trying to give us a impression rather than a fact but then where are the numbers actually potentially vitally important right and so when i'm just imagining if you're listening to this and you're having these panicky feelings like our pastors ben and clayton telling us that we don't know when to trust our bible no you can trust your bible um, what we're telling you is that when you pick up a book of poems uh, today, written in English by an American, you know that what you're reading you should read differently than if you pick up a science textbook or a biography. Or the manual for your TV. Or the manual for your TV. You know that. What The reason you know that is because you can identify different kinds of literature. Now, we're accustomed to a book, a single book, being the same kind of literature. So if I pick up a novel, the novel is full of a novel. It's not part full of a novel, part full of poems, part full of a manual. It's mm -hmm. one thing. The Bible is 66 books put together, and there's all these different things going on in these different books. So we have to read the book of Psalms differently than we read the book of Exodus, which we read differently than we read the book of Genesis, which we read differently than we read the book of Revelation, and so on and so on. Every, we have to ask ourselves, what is the author trying to tell us? And I think that just will enrich your reading of the Bible so much. If that's scary, you should trust the book that you've been given, mm. um, that your God loves you and he doesn't want you to be afraid. He's inviting you deeper into a reading experience of his word. I didn't actually know we were going to get into the weeds on this on week one. This is pretty deep for right out I of mean, the gate. I mean, Genesis 1. It is Genesis. This is yeah. the time to talk about it. It's true. That's true. The Bible gets there right out of it the gate. It does get there right out of the gate. Yes, it does. Well, and I, and I would just add on to that, that I think this is one of the reasons why it's important to read the Bible over and over, is because if you think that it's just about conveying the facts, okay, well, I read it once, I get the facts, I'm done. It's like, nope. Nope. You sure <laughs> aren't. Close. You know, it's like you have not plumbed uh -huh. the meaning of this text 
Yes. You know, and then to piggyback on that, I think it's important, and we'll probably talk about this several times, but just to reiterate, that there's a distinction between kind of the original meaning of the text and then what it means for us or for you right now. Mm -hmm. Those things are obviously connected, but like, you know, so what Moses and the editors of Genesis meant in Genesis 1, we can talk about that, you know, but then what do you take from it today may not be any of those things. Right. And that's okay. But Mm -hmm. I think the trouble comes when we confuse that and we think, okay, the meaning I took from it, that's what they meant. Right. In an absolute sense. And we just need to be very, very cautious about that because it's probably not, (laughs) you know, it's probably not, you know, your thought, you know, that you had about it is, oh, that's, you know, or that that's all that they meant. Mm-hmm. And again, that's not to say that the, we can make the text mean whatever we want it to mean or that it's got like 18 different meanings. No, I, I don't think we would say it like that. But just rather that these are very deep, big stories that do carry a lot of meaning. Yes. You know, and I, I think in my own walk with the Lord of kind of like pools, right, or like bodies of water where it's like you can look at the surface and you really are looking at the lake. But like there is a depth there mm-hmm. and there's treasures you know kind of all the way at the bottom sure that even standing at the top you can see them but you actually have to swim down through all that to actually get to them and so i think that in many ways the bible is sort of like that where certainly surface reading is a legitimate thing you can see that you know like we're not saying you're not seeing it but that as we kind of dive in and as we try and study more that will excuse me that will be rewarded Mm-hmm. You know, as we as we read and meditate on these texts over and over again, both in learning more about what it originally meant and then also in how the Holy Spirit speaks to us through it, mm-hmm. you know, today. <clears throat> Absolutely. Again, if you heard from this that you cannot trust your Bible, you've misheard us. You absolutely can trust your Bible. And if you're if you're feeling a faith disruption with any of this conversation, please come and talk to us about it, which is fine. It is fine. I think the Bible should disrupt our faith every it now should. and then. Absolutely. In <laughs> fact, it's not. If you're feeling a little panicky feeling in your chest, that's actually maybe not a bad thing. That might be an invitation by the Lord for you to go deeper. You know, this it's like is... a roller coaster. When you get to the very top, <laughs> the, you know that, that feeling, feeling in your chest just before you take the plunge? <laughs> but the plunge is deeper into the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good thing. That's where all the fun is. That's is where the, the fun plunge. is. Absolutely. Walking with people as they grow up in the faith and then transition into college and then into young adulthood. And I started youth ministry in 2009. You know, so those kids that were sixth and seventh graders then are now like 25 years old. It's which fun is that you crazy. started in youth ministry before I did. That's kind of fun. <laughs> oh, that is kind of fun. That is fun. One of the things I've seen happen over and over again is that people will young people will learn something about the Bible and then they'll go, why was this kept secret from us? Like, why didn't you tell us this? And my response is always like, well, it's not a secret. Like you just found out about it. (laughs) And it's more that there's just so much. There's just so much that could be said. And like in a sermon, we only have, you know, 20 minutes for me, 40, 50 minutes for you. (laughs) You know, like... So, but you can only say so much in that yes, and can. people can only hear so much and that's okay, yes. you know, or whatever in a Sunday school class or there's only so much that can be said yeah. and you want to say the most important bits 
over and over again and the less important bits are just put on the back burner i guess and so you know i think sometimes people can just have that reaction of like why why were we not told you know earlier about this sort of thing and it's like ah, i mean it was there you know the yes. information's out there it's not being hidden and, and i don't think we ever want to portray something as like oh this is a special pastor secret <laughs> right. i will say that there, i feel like there are some things that pastors tend to know that the congregations don't that we don't talk about very often. <laughs> now, you know that feeling of panic in your chest I talked about? I'm starting to feel it. Well, uh, we'll, we'll leave that there. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know where he was going, but I felt like it was going to be bad. We were getting too close to the secrets. Too close to the secrets. <laughs> well, no. So like this discussion about history, we've, mm-hmm. we've lost some of the people who are listening to this podcast probably. They're like, okay, what? What are you talking talking about? about? What do you mean? How can there be two different types of history? And so it's that kind of thing. It's like people who are like us, who are sort of immersed in this, and it's just part of our jobs to Mm -hmm. think about these things. We can kind of sort through all these things far easier than your average church person can, which is fine. Like your average Christian doesn't need to be able to to always think through these things. Right. Except when they come upon one of these issues, and then it's like, whoa, you know, I've never thought about it like this. It's not that it's being concealed. It's just the jargon, mm-hmm. you know, of kind of the craft of pastoring or, or being a theologian, not that we're theologians, but it's, it was important for me to say, just because, like I said, I've had many experiences of people kind of hitting these things and going, yes, why, why didn't you tell us? You know, it's like, well, we would have, if you'd asked that, you know, I'm... See, part of the fun of the podcast is, is the, the surprise of, you know, asking each other questions. The other one has not prepared themselves to, to speak to. Um, and if I had had time to think about it, I would have thought about it like this way. <laughs> you know, when I tell the story of how Lisa and I met, fell in love, started dating, got married, that was out of order, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> the, the, the bits that I'm telling are going to be, if you were to examine every bit and chase it to see if everything was literally exactly the way that I told it, or if I had exaggerated or... Um, altered details to help you understand what was happening in the story. Um, you wouldn't say that makes the story less accurate. It makes it more accurate because what's happening is I'm helping you to understand what I'm trying to convey. And if I just told you we went on this date to this place on this day um, and I made a list of those, that's not going to communicate the important parts of what I'm trying to say mm-hmm. as much as me telling the story of how we met started dating, fell in love, and got married. Um, And the Bible does that. It tells us the story in a way that makes it easiest for us to understand the most important things. And if you can just grab hold of that, you'll be blown away by how rich of a reading you come away with when when you dive into the Bible. And... Our hope is that you'll do that and that you'll come along with us on this podcast as we we do this together. Um, Yeah, I think that this was a pretty good place to start, I guess. We'll, we've thinned out our audience pretty effectively going forward. So we'll see. Uh, they'll be our diehard listeners from now on after, after that. What, uh, what was your actual topic that you wanted to talk about? Um, the actual topic that I brought to talk about. Take it away whenever you're ready. So the topic that I brought today was the topic of rest. So when we first encounter this idea of resting, we're on day seven of um, creation, where the Lord has 
created. He's created the, the heavens and the earth. He's created the animals. He's created people. And then um, we have the, the idea of God resting. So day seven is in Genesis 2, starting in verse 2, and it reads this way. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And that kind of seems weird to us as we read it. It seems like the resting is an afterthought. And I think one of the things that could be a terrible misunderstanding of this idea of rest would be that like creating the universe was hard and it was hard work and it took him six days to do it. And God was tired and so he took a break. And that's not at all what's being communicated by the idea of rest. And so when one of the things that we miss, I think, because we're so far from the, the time period of the Bible when we read the text, is the idea of a temple. And so temples in the ancient world are really neat and they were very common. And what you always did is when you had a deity, you built a temple for them. We even see that in the Bible as David in a lot of the stories we've been talking about in Chronicles wants to build a temple for mm -hmm. God to come and rest in, dwell in. And so what's, what's neat about the, the Genesis creation passages is the six days of creation kind of read like a temple creation text. Like God has created everything as He's a, creating his own temple. He's creating his own temple. And that's, I think that's, that's amazing. But then this idea, what would happen when in the ancient world when you created a temple is the God would come and rest in it. That would be how you knew the temple was done, and that's that's what the God would do. God's rest in temples. Temples are for gods to rest in. To hang out in. Yeah. That, 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 that's the idea of rest, is to kind of yeah, the spend God time there. Rest you know, and hang out in the temple. Be yeah. present. And from there, he would kind of run things, right? Mm -hmm. So in the ancient world, a temple was kind of like what we think of as the White House, you know, uh -huh. in, in America. So when, the, when a person becomes president... What they, one of the things they do is they move into the White House. And once they get there, they start doing president things, right? right. They start running the country as the president. Presumably. Right, presumably. Dep yes, we do not want to go down any rabbit hole related to that right now. So uh, uh, <laughs> I wish you could see the look on Pastor Ben's face right now, the delight in the things he's thinking about saying. But anyways, um, and so God comes and he rests in the temple, which is creation, and he sort of gets to work in it. And there's some Bible passages that kind of show that this is what is happening with temples. One of them that's really neat is Psalm 132 and verses 13 and 14. It says this, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. Uh, this is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned for I have desired it. In other words, I he's talking about the temple that David makes or that Solomon makes and he's he's going to rest there. And that's what gods do with temples. They rest. Well, since God is resting at the end of creation, that means that creation is his first temple. And from there, he sort of gets to work. And I just really love that idea because a lot of the times we think about this rest, I think in a, a, a flawed way that God is taking a break, mm -hmm. but he's actually beginning. He's beginning the process of, of doing God things in creation. The reason I chose this as my passage, and there's a couple other Bible verses that kind of explain it, but, but something really neat happens all the way down on the other side of, of the Bible in the book of Acts. 
In chapter 2, do you remember what happens in Acts chapter 2, Pastor Ben? The Holy Spirit comes upon the church. And do you know what the Holy Spirit does on the people? Does he rest on them? He rests on them. That's exactly right. So the flames appear over the people's head at Pentecost, and they come and rest on God's people. And so in the same way that creation is a temple, the same way that God rests in the temple that Solomon creates, the Holy Spirit rests on us. And that resting, it means that the temple is complete and that work is beginning. And so when you think about that, what what do you think might be completed when the Holy Spirit rests on us? And what do you think might be beginning? Is that a real question? Yeah, that's a question for you. <laughs> well, I think that the kind of re-redemption of the human person away from, you know, sin and the realm of the evil one is what's completed. Yeah, we often call that, you'll hear that called getting saved or being uh, saved, yeah. And so then the the kind of, I think, journey of retraining or reforming us into men and women who can rule the world on God's behalf is is what's beginning there. Yeah, like which transformation is often what's or called sanctification. sanctification. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Which we often think of as like refraining from things, which is part of it, but I think the, the lion's share of it is actually uh, being empowered and gifted into doing the thing, the works of God and, and mending the world uh, and mending the people around us. Mm-hmm. So... So there's a distinction then between God's rest and human rest because as you're, like you're saying what it, what Genesis means when God rests isn't that he's taking a break but rather that everything's set up and now he can kind of sit and get to work and get into the the work of running the world. But when the Israelites are told to rest, they're very specifically told that they are not to do the things right they're working things. And so what like what can you speak to that shift at all a little bit? Or yeah, like absolutely. So, so the um, in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 11, which is where the Ten Commandments are given, we read, uh, for in, let's see here, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So one of the things we're, we're required to do, or God's people were required to do, was to rest and refresh on that during that time. Um, and I think that or we see that even like spelled out later in Exodus, the word refreshed is even used and attached to the Sabbath. And so what it is intended to do is to be a time where you let the, the work of kind of everything that's been happening in your regular life stop, right? And you refocus. On, on the Lord. You sort of refresh your soul and reconnect to him. The reason for that is because what God is doing is he's getting to work. He's running the world and his people are a part of that work. And so the Sabbath day for us or for his people was to kind of reconnect to God's purposes and what he was preparing them for. And what God knew humans needed was like a cycle, right? Like a, uh, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. So we have regular times of rest uh, at night when we go to sleep. We have sort of set meal times throughout the day. We tend to run on cycles. And I think God, knowing that we are like that, gives us this this week. And at the beginning of it, we have, or the end of it, we have the Sabbath rest. That's Saturday, um, when the God's people would rest and sort of refresh and reconnect to him. And kind of an acknowledgement that he's the one in charge and we're not. It's yes. like we can trust, we cannot work for a day 
and trust that he'll feed us. You know, he'll keep he the is taking systems he is, of the world he's at going. Work. He's doing the things. Yeah. <clears throat> and so there's one more passage that's really neat I wanted to share about it. It's Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. That's just kind of a neat thing. So to him who overcomes, this is in the, is Jesus speaking to the church in Laodicea. I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. But that word sit, do you want to guess what that means? It's the same word. Is it the word rest? Yes. It's the same word as the Holy Spirit resting on God's people in Acts chapter 2. Yeah. So far in the future, we will also come to rest on thrones and help God with the ruling over the new creation. Are we previewing next week's readings? Or... I, I did that at the beginning. Oh, yeah. I still don't remember what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think uh, that can probably yeah. be it. If, if you, you have, if you have hung with us this long, please let us know if you have any questions about the text that you're about to read, and we can address those at the beginning of our next week's podcast. Yeah, text us, email us. Uh, if you try and tell it to us on Sunday morning, that's probably the least reliable way because we may forget. Yes, so, write it down. If or you... you can write it down and hand us a note. That yes. would work too. But that don't just try and tell us because we may not remember. And hand it to whichever one of us is not preaching. Please. Correct. Yep. Thank you. All right. Well, I think this has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Bye. <laughs> no, we need to come up with an actual sign off. Oh, okay. <laughs> How do you feel about stay hungry, my friends? <laughs> I like it. I like it. Okay, so I'll say this has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. And then you say stay hungry, my friends. All right, ready? We're going to do it. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> this has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.